Hi, everyone. This is episode 11 of Color Code. It's called Your Turn, and it's feedback from listeners reacting to our past episodes. So if you haven't listened to those past episodes, you should probably do that. Now let's get started. Hello. Say hi. Hi. My name is Kalechi. I'm Nayasha. We're a couple from Winnipeg, Manitoba. We wanted to thank you so much. And it's always been something that we always will listen to together and talk about later on and share with people we're close with. Hi, I'm calling in about your podcast, Color Code. I am a 30-year-old Caucasian woman living in Canada. The podcast has allowed me to feel able to enter the conversation of race in Canada. As a mixed-race person, I have used this podcast to start conversations with my white family. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Denise. My name is Destin Lord, and I live in Ottawa, Ontario. I love MIA, and I, and I like listening to Color Code, but I felt that the connection between featuring her as an artist and the subject matter of discussing race in Canada, the connection for me was a bit tenuous. Race in Canada is so specific. It's so something that is different than say, race and diversity in the UK or race and diversity in the US. It's by far time we had a discussion in a venue for talking about race in Canada. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to Color Code, a podcast about race in Canada. I'm Hannah Sung. And I'm Denise Balkasoon, and this is our very last episode. Yes. Insert tear emoji here. <laughs> um, it's been a blast. It's been very interesting. And, uh, you know, from the very get-go, we've always said that this is designed to be a conversation. You know, it's a two-way street. And so our last episode is devoted to feedback from listeners. And I'm very excited about that. Well, yes, because uh, as we also said from the beginning, as much as we are interested in this topic, we're not the experts. And we got a lot of really great ideas from our listeners. And so I think... It's of benefit to our other listeners to hear from each other. Yeah, totally. Um, so, Denise, you have a, a celebrity fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a celebrity fan. Um, that's right. Ian, a.k.a. DJ Indian from A Tribe Called Red, um, was one of the people that tweeted at us that he likes the show. And uh, so everyone will hear that later. He and I had a little phone conversation. And can I just mention, from the very beginning, we've been trying to get A Tribe Called Red into the podcast in right. some way. Yeah. So it's just amazing kismet that, you know, he happened to get in touch with you. And it just makes me so happy that we can play A Tribe Called Red track today. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just before we get into all the feedback, um, can I ask you, Denise, what this experience has been like for you? Um, making a podcast is a lot more work than I thought. <laughs> um, so, Don't break the illusion. <laughs> it's so easy, guys. <laughs> so that would be one thing. I think it's been extremely gratifying to learn so many things from so many smart people across the country, to fill in some holes in my own knowledge, to realize that there's an audience for these kind of stories and that people feel very passionately about these issues of identity in Canada specifically. I want to talk about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very proud of this project. Mm -hmm. How do you feel? I feel really great now that it's done. I feel like, yeah, it is something that I can be proud of, you know, the work that we did here. There were some surprises, for sure. I think we went into it knowing that some of the conversations would be uncomfortable, but you can't really predict 
in what way you'll be challenged. You know, if you're if you're really doing your work, like if you're really being reflective, which I think is a, a theme that emerged over the entire course of the series, then then yeah, it's going to be tough because you really have to confront yourself. I think I also realized how how much I can't stand confrontation and conflict, mm-hmm. and you know, I'll get into that in a bit with. Um, some constructive criticism I got back from a listener saying that maybe I should have confronted one of our guests a little, you know, with like been a little tougher. But I just think that when it comes to race overall, it's such a minefield, an emotional minefield. And whatever I can do to kind of have conversations that are calm and therefore maybe longer and broader maybe than like really fast knee-jerk inflammatory kinds of reactions you know, that's just my style, but everybody can have different styles. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of feedback overall. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a lot of positive feedback and we got some negative feedback too. But I think we're going to start with a little warm fuzzy. Yes, <laughs> right? for sure. This is Ralph Arnold, I'm a middle-aged white male living in Lethbridge, Alberta. Just wanted to tell you how much I you enjoyed your podcast, Color Code by the Globe and Mail. One of the aspects I found the best was that it's a podcast that deals with race, which is usually a visual concept that is done by audio methods. Very good. Congratulations on a well done podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Ralph. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ralph. Ralph has a great voice. He should have his own <laughs> podcast. I also felt like I was getting praise from the school principal. Like it felt really nice. Um, yeah, that was a really interesting point to make, actually, that race is so visual. And I think you had mentioned at some point that taking the visual element of race out of a conversation about race will possibly help people get over that first bit of resistance that they might have to this type of conversation. Yeah, it forces you to listen. I also think that race isn't necessarily skin deep. It can be an experience that permeates everything about your life and everything about you. You know, it's like, it's just an element. It's a layer of who you are. So it was kind of cool and freeing to not have, you know, the visual element there, actually. Mm -hmm. But thanks, Ralph. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening. (laughs) So we had many great guests on our podcast giving us their perspective, and it's always a risk, I think, for people of color to talk about race because you can make yourself a target. Um, One surprise that happened early on was when Cameron Bailey spoke to us for our second episode called The Most Visible Minority, and, you know, we're doing our back and forth on Twitter, and he got called the N-word on Twitter. Do you remember that? Yes. I was so floored and I felt so bad that he was basically making himself open to this abuse because he had spoken to us and because we were, you know, excitedly hashtagging Cameron Bailey and Color Code and, and you know, basically I thought the conversation with him was just so stellar and I loved it and then that's what mm-hmm. he got on Twitter. I mean, that's not all he got, but just that was like, it felt like such a smack in the face. As much as I wanted for there to be lightness in this whole podcast series, like we can't forget that when people do talk about race, it really does open people up. It, it makes people vulnerable to those kinds of attacks. In fact, you'd probably have something to say about that. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that I learned doing this podcast is how much it hurts me when people send me hate mail which is like duh um (laughs) 
You know, I get negative responses to my columns all the time. And yet to do a race-focused podcast just really amped up the volume. And it got to a point where I was like, wow, this is really making me... It's just making me feel down and it's making me wonder, like, what is the point? Um, But I wrote about that this week in my column, you know, because our last episode was surface tension about hate crime. And unfortunately, it became very prescient because there's been a huge rise in hate crime in the United States after the election of Donald Trump. There have been a number of prominent incidents of hate crimes in Canada. And so all of a sudden, our podcast episode about an event that happened 10 years ago that we've been working on for months becomes very relevant in a very sad way. So I wrote a bit about that and about the hate mail that I get. And I will say that today I got over 30 really lovely emails from people just saying that they appreciate the podcast and they appreciate my work. And um, that's amazing. Yeah. So thank you, everyone. And you had mentioned before, too, at some point that we all need to learn that we should send nice emails and nice tweets to people when they do work that we like, because for whatever reason, there are a lot more haters expressing their feelings publicly than lovers. So if you love someone that's doing work that makes them vulnerable, honestly, all those emails and tweets make a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, trolling is one thing. (laughs) But constructive criticism is totally different, right? It's like, I definitely got a lot of constructive criticism that I felt was very informative and useful. I got some feedback from our MIA episode. Uh, Why don't we go to the following email? It's from Rudena Bahubeshi. She said, I was just listening to your latest episode, and I got to say, I think Hannah went a little easy on MIA for her comments. You can say Muslim lives matter without saying... I've heard Black Lives Matter before, and it would be more interesting to me if we were talking about refugee or Muslim lives. So I thought that was an interesting criticism from Rudena that I'd gone too easy on MIA. Um, I wrote back, and I gave her a call. Hello? Hello, Rudena? Yes. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Basically, I heard the MIA episode, and in it she... um, said things like, you know, uh, Kendrick Lamar and Beyonce and all these folks are talking about how Black Lives Matter and that that wasn't interesting to her and that was something she had heard before and she would be much more um, intrigued and she heard things like Muslim Lives Matter or Immigrant Lives Matter or Tamil Lives Matter. It's just inappropriate and kind of flipped to me to say that, you know, this is old news because it's not. Like, there's so much in our reality showing us that we need to keep saying Black Lives Matter again and again and that it's not a fact for many people. I, I I feel it's really important, you know, when these things are said for us to question them. And I I felt that that wasn't questioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought about your email a lot. And um, I think it's totally a fair criticism. Just to clarify, I mean, I didn't think that she was saying Black Lives Matter is unimportant. I felt that she was saying all of these things are important. Mm -hmm. And that's what she was trying to get across. Um, but when you and I were emailing, when you said, you know, you don't want to really give people the benefit of the doubt when it comes to conversations about race, like I found that very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, if you could explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, I feel that there is this social expectation that has been put as a burden on racialized people and, you know, people of other groups that are not traditionally heard from where we need to come to the conversation and just, you know, assume that everyone is good when history has told us that's not, that, that that's not the case. So that was Rudena. Mm-hmm. She was such a great conversation. We kept going uh, for quite a bit. But I thought 
Yeah, it was very interesting. It made me question why I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and why the point at which she starts is to not give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I'm hoping that there's a space between giving people the benefit of the doubt and assuming the worst. Like, I don't hear her saying, I assume the worst of people Mm -hmm. so much as, like, to me, that just means having high standards. So... People need to be clear about what they're saying and they need to be open themselves to interrogating their own points of view. Um, And I don't think that a non-white person has to feel badly about challenging. I think that confronting people and challenging people is in and of itself a very challenging thing to do. And you just constantly have to be like considering what you're doing, who you're with, what's the context. Um, I also think, and this is just a little example from my previous life when I was in TV. I remember a station manager saying to me that the way they used to review performance was that they'd bring the reporter into into their office and they'd have a tape and they'd play the tape and they wouldn't say anything. Because when you're there in the room with someone else, you get it. You get it. You know, you you can hear yourself and you can see everything, you know. So sometimes people need a nudge, but sometimes just listening and just saying, tell me more, or why do you think that? Then the person has to actually think and, like, go deeper and deeper into, like, you know, justifying or understanding or explaining. And like, as they talk, they may be confronting themselves, really. You don't even have to do the confronting sometimes. Mm -hmm. You can just be listening and the person does it for themselves, you know. But MIA is not your average person, right? So I guess that Mm. was sort of her point is that as someone who has decided to take on race and identity in a public forum, MIA and Hannah as the host of this podcast, that I guess she was just hoping the conversation would get a little bit more I don't know. Yeah. That is something to like step outside of this moment for a second. That is something that has been an interesting experience for me in general in the podcast is that sometimes I'll look back and I'll think, yeah, that wasn't a good moment. That wasn't a perfect moment. I could have done that moment better. But you can't really rewind except for actually on tape. We can, unfortunately, you know, but you can't go back in time in in real life. Mm -hmm. And so what is it that I can do, you know, because... Essentially, I just have come to the point where I'm thinking I need to be easy on myself because I'm trying, literally, I am actually trying my hardest at this point. And I have to think to myself, well, there's another opportunity at some other point. I'll be interviewing somebody else and I'll be talking to somebody else or having a private conversation in my home with somebody else at some other point. So, yeah, if I were to look back and grade my performance, yeah, I think... I could have been, quote unquote, tougher, but, and this is not to justify or be defensive, but it was a very, very long interview, and we were covering many, many, many topics, and I was just really conscious of the time. But that is, again, another, like, professional critique for myself. Like, I should have gone in more focused. Yeah, no moment is ever perfect, really.
And so one of the most exciting bits of feedback for me um, was from Ian Campo from A Tribe Called Red, uh, DJ Indian. And um, so I love their music and I love, you know, their energy. And when he tweeted at me like, oh, what a great episode. What a great interview. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm such a fan. Can you play? Oh, my gosh. And so we're like, oh, you're so great. You're so great for like four tweets. And then I said, you know, we had tried to have you on the show and um, I'm sorry it didn't work out. And he said, well, let's make it happen now. Hello, Denise speaking. Hello, Denise. Ian speaking. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm good. Let me just make sure this is recording. Before we get into the criticisms, um, well, I don't I... have any <laughs> If you're, if you're going to put me on your podcast and criticize your podcast, you got the wrong, <laughs> the wrong person because I love it. Um, well, tell me what you think about, thought about the race card episode because, you know, it was really important to me that it sort of set the stage for, like, racialization as a verb. Um, mm. So what, when, what did you think of the race card episode? I loved it. Um, I loved it because it did bring up um, a lot of stuff in ways that people don't think about it. It's just so weird that there's still legislation in Canada that dictates by race. Mm -hmm. And um, there, there's, you know, we point to like slavery laws and Jim Crow laws being racist in the U.S., but those laws were abolished. Like the Indian Act still exists mm -hmm. and, it, it, and it exists and it permeates my daily life. So are you so, a status Indian? I am a status Indian. My mom actually lost her status and uh, gained it back. So I only got my status when I was two years old. Mm -hmm. And there's another like aspect of my personal experience and specifically with language where um, my great grandmother uh, never learned English. She, she never found use in it. And I'd go to her house and like see her for tea and stuff. And um, I never learned Ojibwe. Mm -hmm. So like our like disconnect in language, we were alive at the same time from like never learning English to like never learning Ojibwe. Mm -hmm. And that just goes to like show how close that disconnect is. So um, I think it's it's time, and and as your podcast is bringing up brilliantly, it's time to have these discussions on, you know, if you're proud to be Canadian, you you got to understand that you're proud of of your, your your pride is stemming from a pillar of white supremacy. There's no way that you can come into to a country and colonize a people without saying you're better than them. How would you suggest immigrants or children of immigrants like think? about their relationship to indigenous people? Um, I think just just as as typically colonized people, like most most um racialized immigrants are, are coming for, from colonization or running from colonization. So that understanding of, of how colonization hurts a community and hurts a people, um I don't know, I feel that racialized people are just more empathetic. And are more um, eager to hear, like, hear the the the, the similarities between our, our communities. So you're really you you have no like. Here I am asking for your feedback. I'm so like happy that it's all positive. Um, right. <laughs> uh, I'm so ecstatic that there's something like. This. It's not that there's not just something like this, but there's as many people thinking the same things that I am that that demands a, a podcast. Like I that's so exciting to me that there's people listening and there's there's an audience for this. 
I love his energy so much. He was so fun to talk to. Yeah, he sounds like it. So he only had nice things to say. You're practically like willing him to give you some some kind of criticism. Yeah. No, he didn't. He only had nice things to say. I mean, he makes the point quite often as well is that these conversations like this type of podcast is so new that, you know, maybe we should just like let it flourish a bit before we start saying all the things that are wrong with it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's like the way that I've been thinking about, is there any one way to have a conversation about race? Like, no, basically. And people writing to us saying that, you know, they would have done this or they would have asked that question. Like, yeah, there are so many different ways. But because there's so few people doing it on a on a bigger platform, you know, you do kind of wear the mantle of like, you need to do it perfectly, you know. And so it's kind of cool that Ian Campo is um, is just supportive. Mm-hmm. And the whole reason why Ian got in touch with you in the first place is because he wanted to tell you how much he liked the Eggshells episode, which I thought was really cool. And Eggshells, of course, it was this terrible moment, but pretty perfect in terms of what we're doing here with a podcast. I mean, it was ripe for examination. If the Eggshells moment was perfect, um, it really was because... I did what I think you were suggesting before is just let the person sort of spin out on their own and um, figure it out on their own while you just watch like, yeah, you're saying it, not me. Um, I think that was probably the one that we got the most feedback on, whether it was like emails or tweets Mm. or Mm -hmm. so here's one from a listener named Farozin. Why, again, do we have to be a mentor? Where did this discussion come from, which I'm confused by your partner, you know, switching this narrative around saying, all right, an opportunity for us to now be the mentor. I don't think it's our responsibility. That's on him. And if he lost his job, that's on him too. In no way you are at fault for that. And I hope you did not internalize that. I felt like those emotions were coming out slowly, saying, shit, This guy lost his job. He was talking about his family now. Um, And now he wants to learn about diversity. I don't think that's how we should react to this story of Ian and you. In anti-oppression work or any social justice framework or theory, there's no such thing as being apologetic. Oppression is real. And we as women of color are very real too. We need to be validated, not their whiteness, not Ian's whiteness. I really do appreciate your podcast and I think it's great to have like these discussions amongst ourselves. Thank you. What did you think about that? The idea that um, women of color should not be apologetic and the idea that we should not feel sorry for, for Ian Power. I think those are two separate things. Uh, I'm not apologetic and I don't um, think that you were telling me to be apologetic at all. Um, I don't feel sorry for Ian. I was emotionally touched by what appeared to be true remorse on his part. It's not really for me to say, we're going to get into this a little bit more about whether or not he should have lost his job uh, because it wasn't up to me. But he's just had like, he just had a big shock and he acknowledged that he made a mistake and racism sucks and it hurts. And that's, you know, those are my emotions. I also don't want to make some sort of statement on whether someone should be fired for this or that kind of infraction or what types of punitive measures should be taken. But, you know, I reserve the right to feel sorry for somebody when they like, I feel like he was in quite a pitiable condition. 
And I also feel like, you know, and I don't care if anybody um, criticizes me for it, but like, I like to be compassionate in all aspects of my life. And that includes when I'm trying to confront issues of racism, racist moments, people who are doing racist things. Like, really, I think there's a value in being angry and being, you know, having a sense of what is righteous. But at the same time, I really want to address every person's entire holistic humanity, right? So he's a guy who I think is pretty muddled because that came through clearly in his conversation. He didn't know, he was not very clear in his thinking. Am I allowed to feel sorry for him when he is experiencing the consequences of his own actions? Like, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. I actually do feel very hopeful about somebody like him. You know, I feel hopeful that he, when he says something like, I want to learn, oh my God, you know, that's a great reaction to have when you're at a very low point. I want to learn. Because your lowest point might be when you actually could succumb to your anger, I think. Of course. Of course. And it's why I sometimes pre-Trump, used to feel sorry for people who were just overtly racist. Because I felt like, wow, you know, I'm a pretty happy person. I recognize all the privileges in my life. What makes you so unhappy? Yeah, what makes you so unhappy that you would take out your unhappiness on something so kind of like, kind of pathetic and almost cartoony? You know, really, you're going to take out your anger on like, quote unquote, non-white people who are somehow infringing on your like rights. I mean, pre-Trump, I used to really feel sorry for people who adhered to those kinds of ideas because I'd be like, you must be very unhappy. You must feel like something is being taken away from you, you know? Um, Post-Trump, I think I might feel a little bit differently. I don't think I have that much instant uh, feeling sorry for people who are overtly racist because I feel actually fearful about the future. We got another bit of interesting listener feedback about eggshells and about how to interact. I decided to call this person. His name is Ramesh. So in Ramesh's email, he said he wished we did more, quote, substantive engagement with the concerns of the white community. And I wanted to know exactly what he meant, so I gave him a call. Ian really did not have um, any of the tools or the concepts to really participate in this conversation about race. The way I see it is that as racialized on non-white people, we are very intimately familiar with the concept of race um, as we are racialized. And what that means in practice is that the conversation about race, a conversation about race is very easy for us to discuss. It's almost second nature to us because we have very similar experiences, even if we're from different communities. Mm-hmm. A conversation about race is, I think, the only aspect, uh, one of the few instances that I can think of where people of racialized have some, I guess, a degree of more power um, than people on non-white. We simply have more knowledge, generally speaking. And I think a lot of white people are scared to have this conversation. And we have to have some give when it comes to 
like white people. So that phone call uh, went on quite a bit longer, and I'm curious, Denise, you know, how, how that conversation ended and how you felt when you walked away from it. Oh, well, I mean, Ramesh is extremely smart, and, you know, it was a very respectful conversation. We went into it respectfully, so, um, you know, I felt great that I had made contact with someone who was so articulate about this stuff. I mean, it is such an interesting thing to say, what should our approach be with someone who is less experienced in talking about race, especially if that person is white? Earlier, or the message we had earlier from Frozen, you know, she was suggesting that no, there's like no flexibility um, in many or most cases. Um, I guess it's coming up a lot. I mean, the other woman that you spoke with who said she doesn't believe in the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what do I think? I think that, you know, not all white people are the same and some are my family and some are my friends and those are people that I trust and therefore might actually be both more accepting of but at the same time harder on. Like I expect more of them, but I also give them more space to make like a daily mistake. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very difficult because I want to respect that people don't know something or have gaps in their knowledge, but I also don't want to be giving the same basic lesson all the time, and I don't want to ever excuse any racism. Yeah, I think it's really important to not excuse racism and to not apologize for having a negative response when you feel, you know, um, offended or hurt. But There was a lot that Ramesh said that um, I didn't fully agree with, although I thought it was, you know, great that he was bringing it up. But, you know, when he says that all racialized people kind of understand each other to some point, I, I don't really agree with that. Because I don't actually think that all racialized people have the same experience. You know, it's a very complicated web of a system. You know, if you believe that there's systemic racism and white supremacy These ideas get expressed towards all different kinds of people in different ways. And that's why we've tried to talk about intersectionality throughout the series. And, you know, I don't think that a black man walks through the world the same way that I do as an Asian woman. And I think a big part of understanding how racism works and how to dismantle it is understanding the specificity around, you know, what your identity means and how like the interaction between yourself and the world and the way the world is set up in a way that um, discriminates against people in different ways. So all of that is like a very complicated way of saying that in some ways I do agree with Ramesh when he says we need to have some give. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we have to have some give towards white people. We just have to have some give, period. People make mistakes all the time. And, And the thing that I would really hate is for people to be making mistakes honest mistakes and then just being jumped on, which you see all the time on social media. And um, I just for myself don't want to be angry all the time, you know, like that's just me. That's selfish, self-preservation. I don't want to be angry every time I'm faced with it. You know, we said this earlier is like choosing your battles. Like if you don't feel like it today, you don't have to be in a conversation that's going to make you mad. Just like don't have that conversation. Mm -hmm. That is totally a fair choice. I also think that it was interesting when Ramesh said that racialized people have more power in these conversations because we have more intimate knowledge, you know, i.e. lived experience. And the reason why I think that's interesting is because I've actually never heard it phrased that way before. Um, 
except by people who are trying to denigrate the idea of lived experience as being something that is worthwhile in terms of examination. Sometimes when I read things on the internet or read things in the media, it always seems like it's lived experience versus empirical data. And it's like, why does there have to be this false dichotomy? You know, it's like everything all together. It's all information, you know. Um, And so the idea that lived experience is in some way a truer form of information or gives you some sense of power in these conversations, I mean, I don't know. It really just depends on whether people accept and believe that that is a kind of information that is valuable. I mean, I would agree with you that not all racialized people um, are coming from a shared understanding. Uh, And we actually got a letter in the color code inbox this week from someone named Brett. And um, why don't we have one of our colleagues read what Brett had to say? I'd like to express concern over your use of the word brown when describing individuals with darker skin. I'm quite disappointed that you've chosen to perpetuate the use of this poorly descriptive word when referring to me and people like myself. I find it troubling that you'd use such a terrible descriptor to reduce multiple diverse races to one word. I'm of mixed origins. My mother is Polish and Czech German, while my father is South Indian. I hold much identity in being Canadian and a part of our diverse whole. This is a product of growing up in a diverse, up-and-coming neighborhood in Edmonton, where every one of my friends is ethnically different from one another. We didn't openly discuss our differences, but rather concentrated on our similarities. I believe as a show attacking the covert prejudice that lives in our country, you should be held to a higher standard of language use. While you believe it's okay to refer to someone as brown, are you comfortable with referring to people as black? Is African-American more appropriate? Would you refer to an Asian person as yellow? So, yeah, I mean, obviously, here's Brett, uh, who is racialized, and he does not agree with me. So, I mean, just very briefly, um, I use the word brown because I actually find it a really comforting word to use. Why is that? Um, I think it's a diasporic word because, you know, my parents are from Trinidad, but I have shared experiences with people whose families are from India and Sri Lanka. And, you know, the way that my family got to Trinidad is through indentureship and actually people went to Fiji in the same way. And so to me, that shared experience is like very global and very historical. And it's something that I take actually a lot of of comfort in. Um, I also think that it is becoming increasingly a political word the same way that black is. And I actually would say black. I also say African-American. I sometimes say African-Canadian. For myself, when it comes to using a word to describe race, I just think, number one, all words are imperfect because race is imperfect. Mm -hmm. And so number two, I think the most important thing is being able to be comfortable with the word yourself and being able to describe that when someone asks. Both of us, we've talked a bit about Kamal Al-Solili's book, Brown. A whole book on being brown. Right. And it's sort of about that. It's sort of about how brown as a racial term is very relevant in in today's world. Uh, Yeah, I I think now is a great time to go to Kamal Al-Salili and ask him, you know, what does he think of the term brown and why does he use it? I wanted a word that would encompass uh, several experiences that I I thought were um, specific to or prevalent in certain communities of color and those communities happen to sort of have that, that brown skin. 
um, as, as, a, as, as, a, as common ground. Um, the, the origin of the term does start in, um, in racialist science in the sort of 18th and 19th century, and it did start on a very um, negative tone. It was, it, was, it was the world sort of um, divided according to a color palette with white people at the very top and black people at the very bottom, and then in between there is, there is brown, uh, red, and yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was aware of its sort of racialist um, implications and racist implications from, but I actually think that the term has been reclaimed by people like myself and, and, and millions of other people who have just decided to take this term, turn it around and use it to empower themselves. It's, it's a term that sort of connects people. It doesn't, div- I, don't, I don't think it's a term that divides people. In fact, it is, it's remarkable how many experiences from, for example, the Latin American community has been very similar to those of the Filipino community and very similar to those of, from North Africa. So it's a term that has actually brought people together. I never used the term in any community un- un- until I've seen enough evidence that it's a term that they that the particular community uses and uses with a certain kind of pride. Um, it, it, create, it creates connection. It creates a, a sense of community, and never more so than now, where these 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 communities that are that I call brown in my book are are going to be on the receiving end of a very hard political lesson um, in the U.S., uh, you know, a fast turn to the right. And these are the communities who are going to to, to pay the ultimate price for that shift. Mm-hmm. Is Brett right to say that this term actually is hurtful to him? Well, it, it, it's culturally specific. Um, I know in the UK there, there, there were, when I talked to a couple of people there, they were uncomfortable with the term because it, 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 it was used largely against people who are, who are brown. <clears throat> it was used um, as a term of uh, as, as an abuse or as a racial slur. But just like the word queer has been reclaimed by gay people, just mm-hmm. like the word, if I may say on the podcast, bitch sometimes has been reclaimed by feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, and in hip hop, the N word as well has been reclaimed. Um, uh, so I, I actually see the, the the reclaiming of the word brown as an important part to sort of erase its racist history and give me a chance to call myself what I want. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kamal Al-Soleli, author of Brown, What Being Brown in the World Today Means to Everyone. Hello, I really enjoy your podcast. I have a question about something said in the Angel Complex episode. One of your guests talked about being told that she was well-spoken, and she spoke about that being racism. I don't understand that, because it seems to me that is a compliment. I've been told that I am well-spoken, and I've observed others being told that they are well-spoken. Is it a compliment when it comes from someone who is of the same race, and racism when it comes from someone of a different race? Please don't get me wrong. I think there is a lot of racism in Canada. But where is the benefit of the doubt? Am I being naive? Perhaps ignorant is the right word? Do you have plans to cover such things on your show? It might be helpful to oblivious white people like me. So it should be said that Kathy signed off her letter with a smiley face emoji when she called herself an oblivious white person. And we should also mention that she is talking about the Angel Complex episode featuring Akio Maroon, who is a black woman. And she is the person who said that when people react to her with a little bit of, you know, surprise in their voice and they say, you are so articulate as if it's a, a compliment. That's when she says, you know, I believe she said that's not cute. That's racism. 
Um, so I decided to call up our new color code friend. Uh, her name is Ray Cash Walters, and we know her because she's been tweeting with us a whole bunch over the course of the series. She's in Edmonton, and I gave her a call. Do you ever hear that? Do you ever hear, wow, you're so articulate? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's, when we look at the words, you know, you are so articulate. I don't think that is necessarily in itself um, something that is offensive or racist. But when you look at it in context, or if you think of it as someone saying it with an edge of surprise, like, wow, you're so articulate, as if they didn't expect you to be when they first saw you. So it just speaks of bias. They didn't associate my black face with someone who is articulate. They didn't associate my black face with someone who is intelligent. And so they thought it was important for them to come up to me and say, you know, you're doing really well for a black girl. It's kind of the, it's kind of implied in that compliment of, oh, wow, you're so articulate, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I have another example of someone I was dating who said to me, you're, you're like the most beautiful black woman I've ever seen. And this compliment came with the implication that other black women are not beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess when folks think that thought, when you think, wow, that person's so articulate or, oh, wow, that person's so pretty, just think, just think back to what your expectations was for that person. So that was Ray Cash, our new friend. I love Ray Cash. Thank you so much for taking my call on that. And she brought up a great point, like just checking your own assumptions. Um, I often like to swap out words in my mind. So for example, when she gave the example of a boyfriend saying, you're the most beautiful black woman. I mean, swap out the word black for white. You're the most beautiful white woman. And it sounds a bit odd. And the reason why it sounds odd, obviously, is because of our societal beauty standards are quite white already. White women are just women. (laughs) Exactly. And so if it sounds a bit weird when you swap out the race identifying word, then you should probably examine why that is, you know. So I hope that did the trick, Kathy. Thanks for writing the letter. Mm Mm-hmm. Hi, my name is Sabrina Dellen, and I'm sending in some feedback after your First Comes Love episode. I have a mixed-race daughter. I'm Indian, and my husband is white. And when she turned three this summer, I kind of went into panic mode because it dawned on me that in order for her to understand her Indian culture, it was completely down to me. Uh, I was just kind of so wound up about this situation that I ended up uh, telling a story about it at a live storytelling event. And uh, it was a really amazing experience because afterwards so many people came up to me to tell me that they totally understood and they could relate. And that was uh, really special to have that sense of belonging. My name is Will and I grew up in Mississauga, Ontario. I am a mixed-race child. Um, My mother is from India, and my father, he's got a Polish father and a Macedonian mother. My story really differs from from the ones you covered in your podcast in that I kind of pass for white a lot of times. I always thought of myself as as being white when I was young, and now, as a 26-year-old, I definitely don't think of myself like that anymore. So I think this episode kind of caught me at a really um, interesting time in my life. Thanks very much. Take care. Hey, Color Code. 
My name is Nadia Nassar, and I'm responding to your episode titled First Comes Love. I'm mixed race myself, and so I'm really glad you dedicated an entire episode to this. I think one of the first things I wanted to respond to was this idea around cocooning that you talked about in this episode, um, cocooning coming from Manel Matani, um, and I'm a big admirer of her work. From my own personal experience, I see some of that cocooning that's gone on. One incident I remember very clearly from my childhood was on the morning of 9-11. At that point, I was nine years old. I wasn't old enough really to understand at all the political or social ramifications of what had happened and what was going to happen afterwards. But what I do remember was my parents sitting me down and trying to explain what had happened. And they later told me that they wanted to, as much as they could, prepare me because they were afraid that I was going to be, I don't know, treated badly or discriminated against because my father was known to be Middle Eastern. And But I love the podcast. Again, I'm very glad that you dedicated an episode to mixed race people. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nadia. You've been awesome on Twitter and with that feedback. Um, and all of the feedback I thought was really cool when it comes to First Comes Love, like it was people just wanting to share their stories with us. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the other main themes that we have mentioned throughout the show, which is that, you know, these are Canadian stories, but there hasn't always been a space for them in Canadian media. And so it's really nice that people felt like this was a space for them. Yeah, well, you know, your other job here, Denise, is that you're an editor in the Life section. And the Life section... I mean, what do you see as someone who, professionally speaking, you know, you curate a lot of the stuff that we would be reading about what it means to be living a Canadian life? Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting because I don't want the quote-unquote different family to be the theme of the story. So I really resist making a story that's like, here is a family that is mixed race. Here is a family that, you know, has three parents. I would prefer that the story is like, here is how families, you know, deal with holidays or whatever. And then within that, you have three families and they're all very different. Mm -hmm. But that can be a challenge. You know, we did a story earlier this year about people who get um, like meal kits delivered. How do you put a call out as a journalist that's like, I'm looking for families that get meal kits delivered and also can they please be interracial? Right. So it's sometimes hard for the reporters to find sources for diverse families, for regular family stories. I think it also speaks to the importance of having a newsroom where everybody is is reflective of the populations outside because – It's only natural, and I think about this a lot in my personal life, it's only natural that you do form friendships and relationships with people with whom you have these similarities. And I don't think about it in terms of skin color so much as I think about it a lot in terms of class, because I'm someone who has changed class in my lifetime. And I think about my children, and I think about my parents, and, and I think about my friends and who my peers are. And if you look at your own friends, I'm pretty sure you're probably not diverse socioeconomically speaking, you're probably very similar. And so when it comes to, you know, stuff like that, and you think about your own networks, and how sometimes people find interview subjects and sources for their stories, 
um, you know, it just reflects a greater need to have like inclusivity mm-hmm. as a priority for newsrooms. But that's just a personal pet uh, issue of mine. <laughs> um, what about like over the course of this year, thinking about racism a lot and learning a lot of new facts about racism in Canada? Um, how have you coped with 2016? <laughs> oh, I mean, 2016 <laughs> is almost over. It's almost over, everyone. <laughs> um You know, it's been a difficult year in many ways. Uh, I think the number one thing is community, whether that is my family, whether it is my friends, just having people that I like and that I trust and that um, on one hand, if we're going to have these difficult conversations, there's a lot of trust there. And on the other hand, we trust each other that we are smart and we can sometimes just not actually deal with this for an evening because it's impossible to do that all the time. Um, That and a lot of ricotta. (laughs) But what do you do with the ricotta? That's a different life section story. Um, How about you? Well, I'm a very social person, so I've always kind of prioritized seeing my friends and doing things with my friends and consuming copious amounts of wine and just like talking it out. But something that I've really prioritized for myself this year, considering how uh, and I will say it has been difficult producing this podcast this year um, because you're just kind of immersed in a lot of ugly information all day long, right? So something that I've prioritized is the doing of activities. So, you know, I have a full-time job and I have two young children and that is just really, it means a full schedule. But what I needed to do was get out of my head. So, uh, you know, I found an amazing dance teacher And I remember there was one class that I went to and I just could not get out of my head. And it was the worst because I also then had two left feet the entire time. And I just thought, oh, yeah, like you forgot that the whole reason why you come here is to get out of your head, you know. So the doing of things like I've I've made that a priority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes shoving all this stuff aside is hard or maybe impossible depending on what kind of day you've had or how traumatic what you learned or saw was. You know, this weekend I came across a couple of pieces that we'll put into the show notes. One was a piece of the New York Times called Staying Sane While Black. Um, And one was a podcast with one of the actors from Orange is the New Black talking about her her parents were deported when she was 14 and she was on her own. And both of the women spoke about their experiences with depression and with addiction and with self-harm that were largely because of their experiences with racism and prejudice. And so... Having a coping strategy is important and also knowing that sometimes it's going to be harder than usual and just sort of sitting and realizing that those are completely reasonable reactions. Yeah. I would say, though, that whatever you can do within your power mm-hmm. to try and make things better for yourself is something you really need to do. And and I'm not, I'm not saying that take a dance class and things will be better. It's not like that, but... So often we prioritize are the things above like ourselves and our our own like kind of peace of mind. And, you know, I would just say that if you're feeling really down in the last couple of weeks, like be a little bit selfish and care about yourself the way that you would care about, you know, your closest loved one. Like you can do it, you know, Mm -hmm. do whatever it is that you need because you're right, like all those larger issues can seem so overwhelming and it may seem like you're powerless in the face of them, but, you know, take whatever bits of power that you do have in your own life 
to to shape your own life as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Love yourself. You deserve it. I just want to share how amazing it has been to to hear feedback from people and to start these conversations on Twitter. I don't always love Twitter, but when it comes to color code, it has been amazing because it has been a way that we can connect with all these people. And something that I've been doing is I'll I'll plug in the color code hashtag because I I want to see what people are saying about the podcast. If you're sad that this is ending, I mean, just go for it and plug in that hashtag and you can see who else has been talking about it. You can start up your own conversations. You can, you know, talk amongst your own networks and and keep the conversation going. Yeah, it's been such an honor to talk to people in this way. It's been so gratifying to know that so many people are interested in talking about race in Canada. I'll just say, you know, it's been really great. Thanks for listening. Yes. What more can we say? <laughs> Thank you for listening to Color Code. And thank you so much to everyone who's given us feedback over the course of the series via email and Twitter. We appreciate you so much. So we have a long, long list of people to thank who helped us when the series was in development and as we were actually recording. Um, Hannah, do you want to start? Sure. Thank you to Dan Meisner, Kasia Mihailowicz, the great folks at Planet Money, Another Round, Radiolab, and More Perfect, all of whom helped us get the show on the road way back when it was just a twinkle in our eye. We'd like to say thanks to our bosses at The Globe who looked at our pitch and said, you've never done a podcast before? Great idea. Go ahead. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) We'd also like to thank Bon Jay, the Toronto band, for their song Stumble, which we used as our theme throughout the series. And to our faithful Backdesk and team of listeners, including Alison Zosky, Angela Murphy, Angela Pachenza, Cheryl Sutherland, and Craig Lord, thank you. I would like to thank Patrick Dell for lending me his video department for all of 2016. Thank you, Patrick. The Color Code team is Timothy Moore, technical producer, Kevin Sue, senior producer, Danielle Webb, who created our site and publishes every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. There's also Katrina Bolak, marketing genius, Josh Hargreaves and Melissa Stajic in social, Matt French and Jason Chu in design, and Matt Frainer in presentation. And uh, thank you. Denise, Denise Balkasun, co-host and co-producer of Color Code. Thank you, Hannah Sung, co-everything. <laughs> it's been a trip. 